Conor Mulva, you have been researching the Irish Parliamentary Party or the Home Rule Party. Can you say, first of all, how you got interested in that, in that topic? I started back in 2006 looking at the Irish Volunteers and specifically at the split that occurred in the Irish Volunteers in September of 1914 between Owen McNeill's Irish Volunteers, which then went on to stage the Easter Rising, and then Redmond's Volunteers. That big split and how that split came about, how John Redmond installed his own nominees onto the Provisional Committee of, of the Irish Volunteers during the summer of 1914. And then I did some more research on John Redmond's relationship with the Catholic bishops from 1906 up until his own death in 1918. For my own doctoral thesis, I looked at the Irish Parliamentary Party as a whole, as an entire entity. What was the Irish Parliamentary Party and how was it founded? Okay, so going, going right back, I suppose, to Isaac Butt and, and the foundation of the Home Government Association uh, in 1870, the party began as a movement that wanted to bring government back to Ireland, simply the, the concept of home rule. While everyone would be familiar with the concept of of home rule, that, that desire to work within the constitutional parameters to bring uh, home governance back to Ireland. That was one strand of home rule and that was, I suppose, the publicly trumpeted side of home rule. But from a very early period and from the entry of people like Joseph Bigger into the home rule movement in the mid-1870s, the home rule movement did link into a more radical tradition in Irish nationalism, namely Fenianism. And from there, it linked into the land question which I suppose we could link back to Daniel O'Connell in that this was a means of popularising what was quite an esoteric concept of home rule, but making this movement more relevant to the people of Ireland by linking it into the land question. So famously, Charles Stuart Parnell said that I would have never taken off my coat and rolled up my sleeves on the land question if, it, if I did not know that it was for the furtherance of Irish uh, home rule and home governance. So, Was the land question... Uh, the same thing in many people's minds as the national question. One scholar that's done some excellent work on this is Michael Wheatley, who in a later period has looked at provincial Irish nationalism and the linkages between, let's say, the upper echelons of the, of the Home Rule movement, the, the, the concept of Redmondism, which Wheatley says was a more conciliatory form of nationalism, which was more imperialistic. It was, I suppose it links into a... Catholic loyalism that goes right back to the Confederation of Kilkenny where Catholicism and a loyalty to the Crown as opposed to the English Parliament was um, still something that was contiguous and was able to exist in, in parallel. Uh, so that was, that was a theme that came into the upper crust of the Irish Parliamentary Party um, in the early 20th century. But underneath that, the substrate of Irish nationalism and the vast bulk of Irish nationalists at a provincial level uh, were still, in, in Wheatley's own words, steeped in Catholicity, a sense of victimhood and an antipathy towards England. So in that sense, there, there was no real shift in the bulk of, of Irish nationalists. They never became the same as their, their leadership as the movement progressed into the 20th century, but they did, uh, I suppose, link the two movements. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky subject. It's one that it's very hard to, to explain how those linkages occur, but there is a recruitment of people from a land background, going right back to Michael David, let's say, into the home rule question. And really, their desire within the movement is to advance the liberation of the people in a more tangible sense. And one key figure in that would be William O'Brien, who reinvigorates the entire Irish constitutional movement in 1898, when he founds the United Irish League, which becomes the 
grassroots organisation of Irish nationalism after that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to stay on the land question and the land war for a second, once upon a time I saw a picture of the reservoir in Wicklow when it, there was a drought and it, and it emptied. There had been a village there before which had flooded when they built the reservoir. Mm. But on one of the houses uh, there was uh, a graffiti, no evictions, God save Ireland. <laughs> Very good, yeah. yes. Can you explain this kind of, on, on a popular level, how people saw this kind of... Well, uh, I, I don't know about the... Um so back with Blessington example, <laughs> but uh, it's it's certain that's an excellent uh, anecdote. I hadn't heard that one before. On a, on a popular level, I think that the whole point is that people were much more um, radical, much less conciliatory, and and that this notion of of a home rule party that was uh, fully constitutional uh, never really existed on the ground. Uh, Captain Moonlight, as in the the concept of agitation of protecting one's own land of antipathy to landlordism in its most uh, the concept of exploitative landlordism that's not how it existed on the ground but this caricature of land landlordism that was often uh, portrayed by the land league um, was something that motivated people on the ground it was how people interpreted their own struggle uh, in the context of of home rule and i think one of the most illustrative things on this comes in a later period in 1912 her home rule bill in 1912 was met with very much, I suppose, a sense of apathy in provincial Ireland. And this is seen in admittedly biased police reports. The police collected uh, monthly reports of every single county and district in Ireland uh, and reported back up their chain of command. And in these, uh, one particular example, but this this can be brought on on a nationwide basis, uh, Kilkenny, which would be seen as part of that more sedate, uh, less sectarian part of Ireland where Catholic and Protestant farmers lived more in, in tandem and, and more in harmony than they did, let's say, in Connacht. In this particular part of Ireland, it was seen that there was great apathy towards the Home Rule Bill. And the thing that really motivated farmers at that time was the National Insurance Act, uh, under which they were allowed to incorporate themselves and begin to get into uh, social insurance. So in some senses, the, the, the Home Rule issue never really motivated um, the Irish peasantry, for, for lack of a better term, but, but Irish tenant farmers, let's say. Uh, once they had solved the land question, uh, and that can be traced back to 1903 really with uh, George Wyndham's Land Act, which was the most um, expansive and, and the most uh, decisive of the land acts. Uh, once the land question was solved, then they had very little reason to push forward with Home Rule. They were, they were quite satisfied with their lot by that point. Many of us know about the land war in the 1870s and 1880s, and this was mainly to stop evictions and to put a halt on rents and eventually to subsidise buying out land but in the early 20th century there was another episode which the party was involved in called the Ranch War. Can you explain what that was? 1906, centering around the figure of Lawrence Ginnell in Westmead, Roscommon and that area around the Midlands there. Ginnell began to become quite central to a new agitation which was around the clearing of lands for the creation of large ranches or, or grazing pasture land and the removal of large amounts of tillage farmers. Interestingly even though the Liberal government was in power in 1906, the ranch war led to the imprisonment of various different figures, including Ginnell, who was then a Home Rule MP. Now, Ginnell subsequently left the party, and he was always a, a maverick within the Home Rule party. He eventually became Sinn Féin MP, and one of the very few individuals who made that unusual transition from Home Rule to Sinn Féin, although it's not unique. So, from 1906 to 1909, there was widespread agitation in the Midlands around this ranch issue or the, or the ranch war as it was, it was referred to. There was land agitation, there was cattle maiming, there was intimidation, uh, particularly one of the most famous forms of intimidation and one that's quite low level I think in, in the 
grand scheme of things and that's the threatening letter. William Vaughan has written about this extensively in, in his writings on the land war and said that studies of the threatening letter are one of the most interesting ways to get into the land question because this was often the first resort of somebody who felt uh, downtrodden or um, hard done by, by a landlord. They would write them a threatening letter, usually with an unusual pseudonym like Rory of the Hills or something like this and, and threaten that if they weren't given a, a more fair deal or they weren't given a, a good deal on their land, they would uh, let some cattle loose or drive some cattle or agitate in some other way. Which goes right back to the 18th century. Exactly. This, this shows there's clear continuity <coughs> between the 19th and the 20th century in these terms.